Scripture today is Mark 16, verses 1 through 8. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who is crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him? But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, to those of you who are visiting this morning, we have been working our way through uh, the Gospel of Mark these past nine months or so, and we timed it so that we'd come to the end of this Gospel on Easter Sunday. Uh, so here we are. We're coming to the conclusion today of a series we began quite a few months ago. Mark, this gospel, is a historical narrative. It is a book written about the life of Jesus, his death, and burial and resurrection. Who is this guy? Mark, he was an early member of the church. He was the author of this book. And Peter, the disciple, the follower of Jesus, was his source. So Mark used Peter's stories and, and Peter as a source for this book. So we have an eyewitness account in the Gospel of Mark of the life of Jesus Christ. That's what we've been looking at over these past months. And I'm so glad you're here this morning because you are here for the best part. The best part. Do you believe that? Amen? It is. It's the best part of this book. Because what we're talking about this morning changes everything. Everything. The course of history, you might even say. If that's true, it is. If it's true. We believe at Bethany Church that God speaks through his word. And that when we open God's word, he speaks to us. So we're going to do that now. That's what we do every Sunday morning. We open God's word together. We read it. We explain it. We apply it. We help ourselves understand it. These words from God to us. And the story of Jesus' resurrection, which changes everything. Everything. It was Monday this week, I think it was, when my wife Robin texted me, Notre Dame is on fire. It's on fire. And I texted back with her with this absolute disbelief. What? With like four question marks. What? You see a picture here of the events that took place this last week. Uh, you see the people in the foreground there watching. And millions all over the world were watching and smartphones and streaming news or TV. And as I watched this medieval-era era cathedral, Notre Dame, go up in flames this past week, I couldn't help but think, wow, nothing lasts forever. Nothing lasts forever. A writer of the New York Times said it was like this, watching layers of history just evaporate as it went up in flames. A building that has held so much worship, so much uh, history, 
and culture tied to that building. And not only that, but its status is really an icon of, of, of Western civilization and, and human achievement of building. It was hard to watch. Well, why is that? I mean, no lives were lost. And only one firefighter was injured. And somehow the world kind of still looked at it and grappled with it this week as a tragedy. Even as I was watching and thinking, I, I hope they can rebuild it. I, they have to rebuild it. They've got to. I think we watch and mourn and, and sense the tragedy because it makes us realize that nothing lasts forever. Even a building that was built 800 or so years ago. And don't we desperately want things to last, don't you? Just, just something. Especially the good things in life, the beautiful things in life the things that give you joy. Don't you want those things to last? But they don't, do they? Nothing lasts forever. I mean, maybe Notre Dame for you this week was no big deal. It kind of came and went. But if you've been alive for any amount of time, you have lost something or someone that makes you have this deep-seated, even if faint, sense of nothing lasts. But it should. But it should. Have you had that sense in your heart? I have to imagine that even as we're looking at the Gospel of Mark, that the disciples of Jesus Christ, faced, as they faced the events of the Passion Week, they too probably couldn't help but think when he died, is this thing burning down around us? Is this thing crashing in? We thought this would last. We thought Jesus would change everything. Be our Messiah and King and, and bring us victory and free us from the oppression of our Roman occupiers. Sometimes, out of the rubble, sometimes out of the ashes, comes something unexpected. And something even better than we could have imagined. And even truer, something that changes everything. As we look at this short resurrection account this morning, we get some of, I think, the most compelling evidence, even in this short account, to the historicity of the actual resurrection and the ongoing implication that the resurrection changes everything. So we're going to look at seven facets quickly this morning about this resurrection that, cha that shows that it changes everything. Grab your outline. Hopefully you got it there from your worship folder. Hopefully you got your Bible or your smartphone or tablet open to Mark 16. As we look at the first facet of this short story, here it is. No one expected a personal resurrection. No one expected this. To, you know, to gain the full impact, the full impact of the reality of the, the historicity of the resurrection, meaning that it really happened, we have to understand the disciples, actually, and all people at this time, all people now, were not expecting a personal resurrection. Mark gives us some really details in verse, uh, verses 1 through 3. Uh, that show this, this fact and support this. Uh, he said in, in 1545 also that a corpse was given to them to bury. Jesus was really dead. He was handed over for burial. A corpse was given to them. And in verses 1 through 3, we get these interesting little details that these women are preparing. They go and buy these expensive, they're expensive now. You wouldn't waste money on this if somebody wasn't really dead. These expensive spices to go anoint this dead body to offset, really, the odors of decay. That's what they were doing. They aren't expecting him to be alive. No one is. 
And on the way, you see they're discussing even, how are we going to remove this stone? How are we going to get this stone away, this giant stone that's sealing the tomb? How are we going to get inside? They had no thought or expectation whatsoever about the resurrection. They didn't. Not only that, add to their, their shocked amazement when they get there and find out he isn't there. They don't show up and go, we knew it. We knew he would do it. Yes, he came through. That's not how they respond. They're shocked. They're afraid. They're actually terrified. They're confused. They weren't expecting it. Well, and where are the disciples? Where's his inner circle? The band of men that he trained for these last three years, they're not there. Why? They're not looking for a resurrection either. Which is incredible, given the fact how much Jesus spoke about his resurrection. Here's one, just one verse out of Mark. But after I'm raised up, there it is, I'll go before you to Galilee. That's just one of many times that he mentions it. You know, some people have objected. They've had objections to the idea of the resurrection that the disciples were deluded or that they created a fraud, a great, the greatest hoax of all history, this resurrection of Jesus. When the clear fact is that none of them were expecting it, I think it points to the historicity. You know, modern people living in our era and our age tend to think, you know, people that came before us, they, they didn't have things figured out. We're so progressive. We're so advanced. We're so evolved. They just, they just didn't get it. They, they believed these ignorant things. They were more prone to believe in miracles. They were more gullible. That's not the case at all. That's not the case at all. History, history shows that it's not. C.S. Lewis calls it chronological snobbery. You heard that term? C.S. Lewis calls it a chronological snobbery. It's really a fancy way of thinking your time's the smartest and the best. Here's what he said about it. He said, this, it's this uncritical acceptance. There's a quote coming up. This uncritical acceptance of the intellectual climate of our own age and the assumption that whatever has gone out of date is on that account alone discredited. It's really a fancy way of just saying, if it's old, it doesn't matter. If it's old, it's irrelevant. If it's old, it's not true. Chronological snobbery, he called it. Maybe that's you today. You think this ancient story, how could it be relevant 2,000 years later? Maybe you need to let your assumptions today be challenged that, that previous generations have been discredited for their ignorance just by the calendar date. People didn't rise from the dead. It would have been absolutely unthinkable for them to hoax this or be misled. They would, and they wouldn't have created this narrative unless it really happened. It's too risky. They weren't expecting it just like we wouldn't expect it today, which is why we have so many eyewitnesses mentioned. Here's our second facet. The story's written as an eyewitness account because of that very reason. It's, not, it's hard to believe. It's a challenging. Somebody would rise from the dead. It's an eyewitness account. Think back from these last couple chapters, if you've been with us these last few weeks of Mark, those that have been mentioned specifically by name, and not only just mentioned by name, but very specifically. Uh, in Mark 15, 21, they compelled a passerby. Here's his name, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country. Oh, this man, Simon of Cyrene, just in case you're confused if there's multiple Simons, it's the father of Alexander and Rufus. That's the one who carried his cross. 
or in Mark 15 later in that same chapter, Joseph of Arimathea. In case you're wondering, there's a lot of Josephs in Bible time. It's the one from Arimathea who went to get the body and asked for Jesus' body. Or listen to Paul in 1 Corinthians 15. He writes, Jesus, that is, he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. Then he appeared to James and to me. Why mention these names? Why give such specific detail? Why say they're still alive? Because they know people are going to question this and want to be certain of this. And so here's some people who really saw it. If you're struggling, go seek them out. Go find them and ask them, did you carry the cross for Jesus? Mary, did you go to the tomb? Was it really empty? Peter, did did you really see him alive again? In our text today, even, if you were wanting to start up a fledgling new movement, you would not have the first eyewitnesses be women. I mean, that's shocking to us today in our culture, and, and rightfully so. You would not choose women to be the first uh, eyewitnesses to an event that you're going to base your whole movement on. Women had very low status in Roman and Jewish society, and their testimony actually could not even be used in the court of law. Now, either these writers had a really prescient forethought and, 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 and looked 2,000 years ahead to uh, where, you know, equality would happen, or, or it, this is the way it really happened. They would not have done this. And here you have these first eyewitnesses. Mary Magdalene mentioned. Mary, the mother of James. More names here. And Salome. They come to the empty tomb. Why? It's our third facet. Because it was really empty. The empty tomb was really empty. Look at verses 4 through 6 with me of chapter 16. And looking up as they got there, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large, just in case you weren't wondering. It was very large. I love that little detail there. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who is crucified. He's risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him. This angelic being, the other accounts, we know there was a couple of them there, makes it very, very clear to these women. And Mark makes this so simple so in this verse to be no understanding. I took the verse and I put uh, on a slide for us. On the left side, you see the verse quoted. On the right side, kind of a translation. Mark makes this so simple and clear so that we will not be mistaken what has happened here. Uh, he says, you seek Jesus of Nazareth. You got the right tomb. You're in the right place. He was crucified. You've got the right guy. This is the one. He has risen. He wasn't taken away or stolen. He's not here. He's walking around somewhere else. (laughs) If that's the case. uh, And then here's the final one. See the place where they laid him. This is the exact spot where a dead body lay. The exact spot. All the theories, all the objections, maybe even in your own heart today, all these alternative theories, they're undone by the question, what happened to Jesus' body? That question alone, what happened to Jesus' body? Now, the empty tomb in and of itself doesn't give us the answer necessarily, but it does raise the question, doesn't it? What happened to the body? 
And we know that after uh, this, uh, after the Gospel of Matthew tells us as well, that the religious leaders, not after the resurrection, actually before, they posted guards there around the tomb, it's recorded in Matthew, because they remember him saying something about raising from the dead. It's recorded in Matthew uh, that they bribed the guards. Here's what they tell him. They say to them in Matthew 28, 13, tell the people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. They were preparing for it. The Jewish leaders did not have the body, or what would they have done? Produced it immediately. And history would record that. Nowhere to be found in history. They would quickly have produced the body. The disciples didn't steal it. How would they be able to stand up to death for believing in Jesus' resurrection, as they likely all did, but one, if they had in the back of their mind, remember, oh yeah, I remember where we stashed the body. How would they go to their death for that? They didn't stash the body because Jesus resurrected. And his real resurrection body, it's our fourth facet, as he came back, was a real flesh and blood body, like you and I have. Touch your arm for a minute. You know, just touch a part of your body. You feel the physicality of it. It's real. It's there. Your chair is holding your body up. Jesus had a real flesh and blood body. He was living again in the same body, but a new body. It's a resurrected body. What was that moment like, do you think? When he came back to life. Here he is lying, lifeless, in a dark, cool, quiet tomb, just laying there lifeless. I can remember as a kid growing up in Orlando, Florida, and everyone has a pool down there. If you ever fly into Orlando Airport, it's, it's like just a bunch of pools. And like, that's all there is. Everybody has a pool there. And we grew up swimming. Uh, we lived there uh, all through elementary school. And we used to play games where we'd, um, we'd throw sinking rings in the bottom of the pool. You've, you've probably seen that, or maybe uh, when your kid uh, did that. You throw things at the bottom, and, and you see how many you can get. How many you can get on going down, holding your breath on just one breath. And I remember we'd go down, and you'd see them, and you'd, you'd grab a couple and grab a few more, and you'd start to feel your lungs kind of, you know, that burning feeling when you're, I, I can get a couple more. I know I can get a couple more. you go a little further and get some, and you see like one at the very bottom. I can get it. But at that, by that point, you're starting to feel that kind of expansion, lungs kind of burning, ready to burst, and, and I'd be reaching for it. I can't do it. And I would just push off the bottom of the pool and come bursting out of water. And you know that feeling, that first breath, <gasps> life. Back in your lungs, you're alive. You felt like you were going to die. You burst out of the water. The bursting of Jesus Christ out of that tomb was a million more times glorious than that first breath. He burst out. He came bursting out. That coming out of the water is only a shadow of his return to life. I love uh, the words. The worship team sang a song before the service. Uh, I think they might do it at the end after service. But here's, here's the words. I love these words. It says, his heart beats. It's a song by Andrew Peterson. His blood begins to flow, waking up what was dead a moment ago. And his heart beats. Now everything has changed because the blood that brought us peace with God is racing through his veins again. And his heart beats. His heart beats. He breathes in. His living lungs expand. The heavy air surrounding death turns to breath again. He breathes out his word and flesh once more. The Lamb of God slain for us is a lion ready to roar. 
A real heart starts back up in that moment. Real blood begins to pump through veins again. And that first breath of life, and now he's walking around. He's walking around. You know, the other Gospels go on to record, Mark doesn't, but the other Gospels go on to record some interactions Jesus had with the disciples over a 40-day period now. A 40-day period. But I think none so powerful as his his appearance to Thomas. I've always loved that appearance to this man, one of the disciples named Thomas. Do you know what his nickname is? Doubting Thomas. Yeah, you got it. Doubting Thomas as he's come to be known in history. See, they didn't all expect him to resurrect, did they? At least one didn't. This guy named Doubting Thomas. They did not expect a personal resurrection. It just didn't seem possible. Uh, Thomas is quoted as saying, unless I see his hands, unless I see the mark of nails and place my finger into the mark of nails, not only that, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe, Thomas said. I will never believe that he resurrected. I love when Jesus comes to him. Jesus comes and he stands among them. That's the disciples. And he says, peace be with you. And then in such a tender way, he personally comes to Thomas and he gives him his request. He says, put your finger here and see my hands. And put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe, Thomas. Believe, doubter. Thomas answered him the only way he could, my Lord and my God. How else could you answer to know that a man had died and he stands in front of you now? Jesus said to him, have you believed because you've seen me? Here's all of us. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. That's you and I if you trust Christ today. Jesus was thinking down the corridors of time and history about you and saying, you're blessed. Thomas got to see him. We have Thomas's account. We have the, the eyewitness accounts. We are especially blessed, Jesus says, because you haven't seen him and you believe he came back to life. What do you do with this? What do you do with this undeniable evidence? The multiple writings we have, the eyewitness accounts, this lack of a produced dead body, the empty tomb, the post-resurrection appearances, the willing of the disciples to die for this as martyrs. Could it just be that people in that day were not as different from us as we think? And they too were just as skeptical and that this really happened. Could it be? And if you're a Christian today, be encouraged and be reminded again that we do not follow something by this just this blind faith that everybody loves to characterize Christians with. This blind faith. This is not blind faith. As if we're gullible and kind of ignorant progeny of those ignorant ancient people that came before us. That's not us, is it? This is not a blind leap of faith. The thoughtful, rational evidence is astounding. And Jesus said, blessed are you who haven't seen him and yet believe. Is that you today? Is that you? What do you make of this? You've got to ask yourself this question that even if you don't believe it today, you should want it to be true. Why? Here's our fifth facet. The resurrection is proof Jesus defeated sin and death. It's proof that Jesus defeated sin and death. The resurrection is like the final stamp of approval by God the Father on his son Jesus Christ. If he didn't resurrect, Jesus would have been a blip in history. 
possibly just recorded in Jewish history of Josephus, who was not a Christian, but he's recorded there in these ancient history books as probably just a blip in history. Look at uh, 16, verse 7 with me. Uh, They're there with the angel, and he says to them, you see the place where they laid him, but go, tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. It's just a little verse. Jesus has gone ahead. You'll see him as he told you. Go there, tell the disciples and Peter this. And you might just read it and pass over that verse. But what's so remarkable about this little tiny verse? It's proof that salvation is by grace alone. This one little verse proves that. How would we would have responded? You come back to life, you realize everybody's abandoned you. What were you thinking, guys? I told you. I told you many times I would resurrect. And you couldn't stay near me? You fell asleep in the garden. You were asleep the whole way through it. I mean, it would have been irate. Look at this, though. Jesus is actually forgiving the disciples even before they've really even repented of abandoning him. He's saying, I I will go ahead. I'll meet them again. I'll even meet Peter again, the one who denied me. It's grace alone. The women have been faithful and a couple of Pharisees, but his inside, his inside circle, the inside guys, the trusted, trained men had abandoned him and left him in fear and cowardice. But the angel says, Jesus will see them again. He'll see them again. He'll go ahead of them because he's forgiving them already. He's already. And Peter, the trusted one, Peter, the trusted one, make sure you tell Peter. Make sure you tell him because I got to think in the back of his mind right now, he's doubting if he'll ever see me again. He's doubting that I'd let him into my presence again. Tell Peter I'll see him. Grace alone. He forgives them because he's defeated their sin and death and has the authority to forgive them. That's what the resurrection proves. It's God, it's the, the paid in full stamp also. One commentator said, it's that paid in full stamp. Your debt has been paid. Paul knows this in 1 Corinthians. He knows it. It all hinges on this. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. And he says, then those also who've fallen asleep in Christ, they perished. No future, no resurrection, it's over. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, he says, if he didn't resurrect, we are of all people most to be pitied, but don't pity us. Do you know why? Because Paul goes on to say, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Don't pity us. Don't pity yourself. The resurrection proves that a victory has come to you. Forgiveness, the fact of the resurrection proves it, and it transforms the world of the one who places their faith and trust in it and in him. What other than the real resurrection now? The real resurrection of seeing this man again who really died could transform this bunch of uh, demoralized, fearful, frightened disciples. It's our sixth facet. The resurrection transforms this fearful and demoralized bunch, into a bold and courageous proclaimers. Those who doubted become believers. 
Those who doubted, those who walked away, those who turned their back on Jesus become believers. Jesus' own brothers, Jude and James, come to believe that their flesh and blood brother is the Messiah. You wouldn't do that without a resurrection, would you? Your own brother. Imagine the difficulty of that, growing up under the shadow of Jesus' life. They come to proclaim he's the Messiah, James and Jude, his own brothers. How about the apostles? As I've already said, it's highly possible that history records that 11 out of the 12 of them died horrific deaths of martyrdom. Horrific deaths. And with a high, almost, almost certainty we know, Peter was crucified upside down for his faith in Jesus. The apostle Paul was beheaded by Nero, the real Roman emperor of history. There's three options. Three options, that's it. Either they died for a lie and they knew it, or they were all crazy and there was this mass hysteria and delusion, or they died because they actually witnessed something real. There's only three options. History outside of the Bible has the record of some of these men really dying for this. Would you die for a lie? I think the evidence in Mark alone rules out number one and two so that number three becomes the only option. They were tr- absolutely transformed. Their entire lives were changed because they saw him. And that's what's so different about Christianity. Over any religion, other religion in the world, and why it's so life-changing, all other religions in the world, let's say it again, I've said this before, I think, all other religions of the world are pretty much religious teaching rules and philosophies. They teach you how to live, And by living that way, you'll be saved. All others, all others. I would even say philosophies that are secular. Gain a lot of money, you're saved. Gain a lot of fame, you're saved. Gain a lot of of power, you're saved. Gain a lot of sex, you're saved. All of them. Live this way, you'll be saved. All of the religions of the world too. Christianity is first and foremost, before it's ever about how to live, it's an announcement. It's a proclamation about historical events by this man, Jesus, things that really happened. But you think about it, even other <coughs> excuse me, religions have miracle accounts, but they only in those other religions verify the teacher's teaching. And they don't really matter because in all those other systems anyways, you're saved by keeping the teachings, all of them, except in Christianity. It's the only one. We are saved by grace alone, by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. It's because of the miraculous events that we're saved. It's because of the resurrection. It's through the miraculous event itself that Jesus saves. It's through it. That's why everything hinges, as Paul will say. That's why everything changes on this one historical event, all of it, because it's what Christianity is about. We're not saved by the teaching, but by this historical event. And when we come to embrace that by faith, it changes everything. The resurrection changes ordinary life into eternal life. That's the last thing today. The resurrection changes ordinary life, everyday life, your life today into eternal life. It means that resurrection life is coming to you. Eternity begins now, not someday when you die. Eternity begins now if you've placed your faith in Jesus. 
You look at Mark's gospel, end of verse 9, uh, nine there, or 8, excuse me. It just abruptly ends there, doesn't it? The women, they, they, they run out fleeing, and they're afraid, and it ends. Verses 9 through 20, which are probably in your Bible, are not believed to be original because they're not found in the earliest manuscripts. They don't contradict necessarily the truth of the Bible, but they're not believed to be reliable. And so most people think Mark just stops there, actually. And because it seems kind of awkward, some people maybe added some verses on. He just stops. It's so abrupt. I'll read the verse again. And they went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment. It seized them, and they said nothing to anyone. They were afraid. It's the end. Why would you end it that way? Why would you do that? Well, some people believe that Mark stopped so abruptly so that you'll take a moment and put yourself in the story right there. He just stops. So we'll place ourselves in the story. What happens next? I don't know. You tell me. What happens next? You tell me. God does it to make us think, what will you do with the abrupt resurrection? Will you believe too? Will you believe too? Will you carry on the message? Will you scoff and ignore and say, it couldn't be true? I, I won't believe it like Thomas did. What will you do? You know, I can give you lots of arguments today, as I did even, and I think they're powerful. But I think what's just as powerful is the reality of eternity deep in your heart that's just as powerful as all these arguments. The reality that seeing Notre Dame burn brings to your mind or losing something beautiful and good that nothing lasts forever, but it should. That's just as powerful, I think, in the arguments. I know that deep inside. I know you know that deep inside. The sense that you have that you, as you've lost a loved one or the setting of a beautiful sunset or the shame and disappointment you feel at your own actions at times and you know, I'm not supposed to be this way. I'm not supposed to respond this way to the pressures of life. I just know it, but I can't do otherwise. Those are all just echoes from the ashes not of a burned-up cathedral, but a lost, broken world. Echoes from eternity that it wasn't always like this and it won't always be like this. I think that's just as powerful of an argument. You have eternity in your heart. So what if today, what if today for you it's the first time you're saying, I kind of want this. I, I want to believe I want to be free from my, my shame, my sin, my guilt. Give me eternity. I want it. You might say something like this if it's a true desire of your heart. Now, words in and of themselves and the prayer of itself is not a magic prayer. Only God transforms and changes hearts. But if he's doing something in your heart today, he wants you to respond. It might look something like this. Jesus, I do believe that you rose from the dead. I believe your death was the means through which God rescued humanity. And me, for my sin, the penalty I deserved. You took my place on that cross, paid a debt I never could. Help me believe and turn from my sin. Help me trust you. Change me from the inside out, I pray. And maybe you're not even there yet today. You could still say this same thing to God. I want to believe. Help me believe. The tomb was really empty. History shows it. 
your heart shows it, and that changes every single thing. I hope it does for you. I hope it has for you. I hope it will for you. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, you can hear me right now and hear us praying right now because you are alive. You're not dead. You came to earth as a baby. You lived a life in a real body so that for the purpose of bringing us back to God, the God who we were alienated from, isolated from, from an act of a man who lived thousands of years before Adam, but from our own sin as well. This was the great rescue plan, and you proved it in the resurrection, Lord. So give us resurrection life. For those who believe, let them leave here unable to keep this message to ourselves. For those who are coming to it the first time, give someone new faith today, Lord, we pray. Let us remember today, without this resurrection, we are to be pitied. But it's happened. In fact, Paul says, and let it change everything about our life. Through Christ's name we pray. Amen. Please stand with me as we respond. We have